On August 14, 1989, after serving the first 10 of a 25- to 50-year sentence for rape and aggravated kidnapping, Chicago native Gary Dotson became the first person to ever be exonerated of a criminal conviction through the use of DNA evidence. In the three decades since, DNA evidence has excluded tens of thousands of wrongfully accused men and women from further investigation and exonerated hundreds of wrongfully convicted individuals across 37 states, 20 of whom serve time on death row. This uptick in vindication is due in no small part to the group of deeply passionate lawyers, law students, and criminal justice reform advocates who make up the Innocence Project, a nonprofit organization whose mission, plainly, is to free the staggering number of currently incarcerated innocent people through the use of post-conviction DNA testing. Founded in 1992 at the Cardozo School of Law, the Innocence Project's groundbreaking use of DNA technology has more than proven that wrongful convictions are not rare or unique, but are instead another symptom of the catastrophic defects within the criminal justice system that the project works so tirelessly to reform. At this year's Brick Open Festival, we teamed up with the Innocence Project and their Innocence Ambassadors, Brooklyn Funk and Soul Group Phony People, for a night of live music and storytelling. Through its overarching theme of justice, the aim of this year's festival was to bring people together to radically imagine a more equitable, liberated future through four days of art, music, film, performances, and shared experiences. On this particular night in the Brickhouse Ballroom, the Innocence Project invited exonerees to share their stories of humanity and those of criminal injustice within the American system. Today, we'll hear from four of the exonerated, Johnny Hincapie, Leroy Harris, Mark Denny, and Carlos Sanchez, on what happens when someone is wrongfully accused and convicted of a crime, and on the resilience, faith, and self-determination it takes to move ahead. They say there's no such thing as second chances, but Oprah says that if you're still breathing, you still have one, in Brooklyn, USA. Queens native Johnny Hincapie spent a quarter of a century in prison for murder before a judge vacated his conviction in 2015. Three years later in 2018, he filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of New York for malicious prosecution, fabrication of evidence, and false imprisonment. Later that year, his lawyers filed a claim for unjust conviction. Both cases are pending. Here's Johnny. When I was seven years old, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother. And I remember that she used to have a canary that she used to keep in a birdcage. And every afternoon, she used to let the canary out her birdcage and allow it to fly in her patio. And the canary was full of life, flying from one end of the patio to another. It would sing beautifully, where anyone that would walk into my grandmother's house would notice such a happy feeling, a happy atmosphere, uh, it's uncommon to f walk into a lot of people's houses and just see a canary flying around and have it singing. So in my grandmother's house, that was a really delightful moment. And amazingly, when she wanted the canary to go back into the birdcage, she used to call it, and obediently, it used to go back into the birdcage. But when it found itself there, it was so weird that the canary changed it wasn't singing anymore. It couldn't fly anywhere. So one day she calls me to go to the backyard with her, and she had the birdcage in her hand, and she opened it, 
and she let the canary loose. And then the canary just kind of like fly for a second in a little area, and then all of a sudden it spread its wings, kind of like looked at my grandmother and just flew away. And I asked her, why did you do that? And she said, everyone deserves their freedom. Everyone deserves to have their liberty in life. And I never forgot that. That always stood with me. So when I was wrongfully convicted at the age of 18 and sentenced to 25 years in life, I found prison to be a very obscure, cold place where people wouldn't smile. They were very serious, very mean. It was a violent place where, because I had such a highly publicized case, there was correction officers that would send other inmates to fight me. And I was told that if I wanted to survive in there, I had it to fight. And that's exactly what I did. I fought. So I fought all those other inmates. And I even had to fight correction officers that intentionally approached me and attacked me. And as time went by, I noticed that in this place, this new environment, I felt like an immigrant. Because I felt like I had it to learn a new language. I had it to learn new behavior, new people, new everything. And I hated it. And I remember waking up every single morning, and I used to ask myself one simple question. Was this the day that I was going to kill myself? Was this the day that I was going to take my life? And I realized that I couldn't do it. I realized that I didn't have the guts. And I remember getting on my knees and just praying to God and asking God to do it for me. I said, please, when I wake up the next morning, allow me to be in heaven. Take away this torment. Take away this pain for me. Because I wrote so many letters and nobody wanted to help me. I didn't have the financial resources. I didn't have the evidence at that time and moment to actually prove my innocence. I said, God, you know the truth. Just do me this favor. When I woke up the next morning, I saw those bars. It didn't happen. I said, I had to go through the pain. But one day I noticed that there was a theater company that came inside the facility and they were utilizing the tools of art for rehabilitation. And they were putting a production called West Side Story. And growing up in New York City, I grew up as a b-boy. I, I, I started break dancing. I loved to dance. I was trying to do a little bit of everything, singing and dance, uh, acting. So I said, why not? Let me just audition for West Side Story. Next thing you know, I got casted as Tony. <laughs> and I said to myself, Oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? And when I started rehearsing, I had to learn over 100 pages of lines, over 15 songs, several dance routines, all my blocking, and I started getting into the character of Tony, and I remember moments where I would be in my cell singing the song of Maria, and I would say, the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. Maria. And when I came out my cell, guys used to look at me saying, what in the world is wrong with you? 
what are you singing? You know, because in prison, that's not the norm. Guys would like listen to other types of music. It was like more gangster to them, more hardcore. And this wasn't the norm. Guy coming and singing Wet Side Story songs. But I got into it. And when it finally came to performing those four nights in prison, getting into that character once again, dancing with the jets against the sharks, getting and singing to Maria in the balcony, I had a feeling because of all that dancing, all that singing, I just felt something different that for the first time in my life, in the first time in a long time, I too spread my wings and became that canary. Thank you. In 2017, after almost 30 years of appealing a wrongful rape conviction, Leroy Harris was offered a chance at freedom, but at a cost. Though the Connecticut State's Attorney's Office conceded that the evidence against him might be tainted, they made his freedom conditional to pleading guilty to a set of lesser crimes without admitting that he had actually committed them. Mr. Harris played along in the courtroom, and his sentence was reduced to time served. He was released a few days before Thanksgiving. Here's Leroy. On September 18th, 1984, my life changed in a very bad way. I was a young man, 23 years old, and I was arrested and charged with three counts of robbery and assault and given 80 years in prison. I, I didn't know what to do. And you, me being a thinker, I thought to myself, I got to get out of here. So in my mind, I'm saying, what are you talking about? I'm, Robin, I saw who? I don't know what you're talking about. They locked me up anyway. They ignored me. So I'm thinking every day. I said to myself, I'm going to get out of here. So every day I'm looking for the way out. I'm not sitting around like everybody else. I'm looking for whatever door is open. I'm gone. So finally, I see the way out. And pew, that's, you know, as quick as it can get. I was gone. Two years later, they catch me. I, I escape. They catch me, bring me back to the prison, put me in a hole. I'm still thinking, I got to get out of here. A couple of months go by after I get out solitary confinement and I see, I'm still looking, I see an exit. Pew! I'm gone again. Two years later, they get me back. So I escaped twice. Now I'm in the hole, solitary confinement, and when they let me out, you know, now I'm like a, a prison folk hero. So I'm, I'm walking the yard, there's 1,500 people in the yard. So I'm walking the yard, I'm in the front walking, and some just said, turn around. So I turn around and look like this, 
And when I turn around, unbeknown to me, the whole yard is looking in the same direction I'm looking. So I didn't even realize it until a friend of mine said later, you know, everybody was following you. <laughs> they look for the way out. Wherever you going, I'm following you. So I'm still thinking, <laughs> I got to get out of here. So on... February 8th, 1992, you know, I devised another plan. I'm sawing the window out, hacksawing it out, come over the roof of the prison. Eight o'clock at night, jump down on the roof, go out the gate, and next thing you know I hear, don't move! They got the guns like this, the prison guards, and shotguns, and they trembling, and I'm scared. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to die. That moment changed everything for me because that was the first time I was anxious to get back in the prison cell. So they catch me, put me on the ground, take me back into the prison, put me in a hole. Now I'm thinking, well, I can't do this no more. Because, <laughs> you know, you see the fear of uh, death, and it was so real. I was, well, I was in the hole for two years. I started learning the law. I started reading law books. I, I put together a self-management chart, a time management chart. Every day, things that I didn't know, I would take an hour from 7.30 to 8.30, from 8.30, and just read on anything. Every day, so in a month, I got 30 hours or something that I never knew. In a year, six months, is, I'm a scholar. So I just kept reading books, law books. Uh, the USA Today, a friend of mine bought it for me. He purchased it for the year, so I had read every section. And I, I, I thought about how I'm going to get out. So I'm writing everybody, writing. And finally, I hear from the Innocence Project in 2000. And they, they was interested in my case. So they said, OK, we're going to take your case. So it went from 2000 all the way to November 21st, 2017. And I was finally exonerated. And after 29 years in prison, I hear that some of the guys that was following me around the yard trying to find a way out with me the wrong way, I hear from some friends that communicate with me that they are followed my lead now and they're in the library, in the law books. And they're trying to, get, trying to get out. And 
I want to say, although in my mind I wanted to get out, I never, when I got out, actually went home because I couldn't. So tonight, after the brick celebration, I'm here to tell everyone I'm going home. After serving nearly 30 years for a crime that prosecutors now agree he didn't commit, Mark Denny walked out of a Brooklyn courtroom a free man at the age of 46. After several unsuccessful attempts to locate evidence that could be submitted for DNA testing, the Innocence Project brought the case to the attention of the Brooklyn District Attorney's Conviction Review Unit, which found that Denny had no involvement in the original rape and robbery. In late 2017, the Brooklyn DA's office moved to vacate Denny's conviction and have him freed from prison. Here's Mark. To me, as a little child growing up, my grandmother meant everything to me. You know, that's where I learned my first important values from, namely, you know, the fear of the Lord, community, and the fact that honesty will carry you a long way in life. You know, growing up in this country, I grew up as every other little kid. I was very adventurous. You know, I enjoyed athletic sports. I enjoyed competition. And, you know, I was well on to my way of growing up and probably becoming the next best boxer because that's one of the activities that I enjoyed a lot. And then one day in 1988, early in the morning, the cops came to my house claiming that they wanted to come in to tell my grandmother why they had my co-defendant locked up, which is my cousin. And they wanted to bring me in to ask me questions about the case. My grandmother didn't want me to go anywhere because I was only 17 years old. But she allowed me to go anyway because the cops convinced her that all they wanted to do was question me and I'll be back home later on. Later on never ended until approximately 30 years later. Nevertheless, within the next nine years from the point that I was arrested, I, sub I was subject to all kind of ridicule. I discovered for the first time ever, because it was my first time in prison, how heinous and ugly the crime of rape was to everybody, even the most lowest person in prison frowned on me, from the correction officers to the counselors to the teachers. Everyone that caught wind of why I was in jail, after a while you began to see the repulsion that came from them towards me. And this is the condition and the burden I had to carry for all those years. It came to a point where I became very depressed. You know, I thought I wasn't coming out of jail. I didn't understand why my truth wasn't being accepted by anyone. And it was just confusing to me. I came to a point where I just, you know, everything my grandmother instilled in me, everything that I learned, all the virtues that I've ever heard, all the good things I heard about the truth and God, everything just went out the window. I was at a point where I was ready to commit suicide. I actually sat in my cell one night and contemplated how I was going to end my life. Because as far as I'm concerned, everyone in the world was my enemy. No one believed in me, and that was very weird and unusual to me. It was like my back was against the world and I felt like I was up against every single person in the world. And it came to a point where I was ready to just give up. I actually planned it out one night and before I actually went through with it, I just laid on my bed on my back and despaired and I just cried out. You know, I said, God, you know, if you are real, that moment was a time for him to give me a sign that he was real. And no sooner after I uttered those words, 
you know, I felt a presence like overshadow me. I was so afraid that automatically I tried to rise up from my bed and I wasn't able to. I felt a, a pressure from my mild hand pressed against my chest. And I was terrified, but the pressure was enough to indicate to me to relax. And I relaxed. And I felt like a form was adjusting to my body. I was so afraid, you know, just to ward off whatever danger I assumed that I was in. I just cried out, God, I love you. And interestingly is that the same time I said those words, whatever the presence was that was trying to adjust itself to my body, it uttered words at the same time. I didn't really understand what it meant, but the words came out of my mouth the same time I was saying, God, I love you. And I slid in my bed and I was afraid. I didn't move. I was just trying to wonder what was going on. And then I don't know how long it was, but after a while, I tried to get up from my bed again. And this time I was able to get up. And while I was up, I paced back and forth from myself, just contemplating, you know, what just happened. And I went to the gate. You know, I was in a single cell by myself. And I listened to see if anyone heard any kind of unusual noise that I may have made. But everything was still quiet. So I went back and I sat on my bed. And I just started gazing at the wall, just thinking about what just occurred to me. And as I was gazing at the wall, I noticed a tiny little cartoon-looking flame in front of me dancing. I thought I was being delusional, so I began to like blink my eyes in like rapid succession. And whether my eyes was closed or open, I was still able to see this flame. And... You know, I was a very curious child, you know what I'm saying? My curiosity about things take me deep. And out of curiosity, you know, I laid in my bed and just, and just looked at the flame. I looked at it and I gazed at it and I gazed at it. And as I was gazing at it, I would notice all kind of sporadic lights will appear and disappear like fireflies. And eventually the fire opened up into like, I guess, the dream room. And from that night on forward, I would have these all kind of vivid dreams. So the next following day, Following this experience, you know, I would still see the flame, even up to this day, and the sporadic lights would appear and disappear. And when it does, I would look to other people to see whether anyone noticed what I was noticing. But no one noticed it was only me. And I felt kind of reluctant to discuss it with people because already I wasn't being believed and I was innocent and no one believed me. But, you know, one time, you know, I actually spoke about it, and an old-timer was around. He heard me, called me to the side. He told me that what I was talking about, he referred me to certain scriptures in the book. And I went to the book, and I read those scriptures, and I was very, very, very excited. I was saying to myself, yes, you know, God has finally heard me, and, you know, everything is going to change for the better. I became so engrossed in no longer why I was in jail of my innocence, but I became engrossed and trying to understand what the flame was all about. So I started going to Bible studies, and, you know, I would hear bits and pieces. I would go back to my cell and read those pieces. And before you know it, I became so engrossed, I ended up reading the whole entire Bible. And that book led me to other books, and other books led me to... I, I went through a whole bunch of literature within the period of the next approximate 10 years. I read books on psychology and Jewish mysticism, you know, astrology. It just took me all around the world. And, you know, I felt that I wasn't really getting nowhere. I was getting a bunch of knowledge, but none of the knowledge wasn't really helping me to understand anything about myself, what happened to me, or what was going on in my life period. Like, why was I singled out? And, you know, over the course of time, you know, it took like approximately another 10 years, but 
the excitement that I got from the fiery experience, after a while, that became ordinary. It became ordinary just like looking at the sun because nothing wasn't happening, my life wasn't changing, I was still in jail. You know, the possibility of coming out seemed to become more and more and more and more elusive. And after a while, even that became like, it became meaningless to me. I began to lo lose faith in that, and I became depressive again. And my depression was coming to a point where it was just, it was pushing me over the edge. And interestingly, you know, in prison, when you get into trouble, they put you into solitary confinement. That's a special housing unit that's secured away from everyone else, where you're locked in yourself for like 23 hours a day, you only get out for an hour. That type of environment became my refuge, it was my peace. Because while I was in that environment, I really got to do a lot of thinking. And I found myself again at the point of contemplating suicide. It was like, God, none of that stuff, it meant nothing because I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. The fact that the truth was so elusive, it was, it was real confusing to me. At the end of the day, the people that, you know, the, the principles that my grandmother instilled in me about community and spirituality and truth, you know, it had me, it had me aspiring to be good things. It had me looking up to the elders in the world. I mean, the elders in the world didn't even believe, you know, it was like, to me, it was no spirit of truth in no one. And that conclusion was, it, it, was, it, was, it was destroying me. You know, it was making me lose faith in everything. And interestingly, one night again, I went to sleep and I had a very, very vivid dream. And this dream, you know, I saw myself just, just crying, just making all kind of like heart-wrenching noise. I was sad for myself because I couldn't even help myself. And inside of that dream, I heard the most booming voice and the voice yelled out. It said, lose him! And it shook me up and I woke up in tears. And it was shortly after that that I began to reach out and try to find help from outside innocent projects. And the one in Manhattan responded to me. I felt so happy. I felt like a whole weight was taken off my shoulder. I was excited. I thought I was finally going home. I would reach out to people and start talking about how I might be coming home soon, so forth and so on. But even after that point, it took probably like another 10 years before the Innocent Project was finally able to get me out of prison. But on December 20th, 2017, I was finally released. It was the happiest day of my life. And... It was the happiest day of my life. You know, the foundation that my grandmother instilled in me with the help of the Innocent Project, the truth has finally set me free. Thank you. Carlos Sanchez spent nearly 25 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit before he was granted parole in January 2017 and released a few months later in May. While the Innocence Project continues to fight for his exoneration, Carlos is adjusting to life on the outside, and in 2018, 
voted for the first time ever in his life. Here's Carlos. So I came home two years ago with a bachelor's in math through the Bard Prison Initiative after 25 years in prison for something I didn't do. So I have a little cousin who's in high school and he's a math geek just like me. And in the past year and a half, he's been texting me math questions and career choice questions. And I've been more than happy to provide him with any advice that I can. A few weeks ago, I get a text in the middle of the night. It was 2 o'clock in the morning, and it woke me up. I'm groggy. I look at the text, and I see his name. And I'm thinking, really, a math question at 2 in the morning? I put the phone down, and I think, you know, I can take care of this later. When I get up at 6.30 in the morning, I open the text, and it's not a math question at all. He says that he's been thinking a lot now that he's older, and he figured that since I'm older than him, he'd ask me what my philosophy in life was. Because he's been having these nihilistic thoughts, and he can't get out of this way of thinking. And I started to think, like, I've been thinking about this for years now and haven't come up with any answers. What the fuck am I going to tell this kid? My initial thought was, you know, kid, you're 18 years old. Get over it. But then I thought it wasn't fair to say that. So my other thought was say, you know, life is great. It's beautiful. Just enjoy it. But I definitely didn't feel like that myself, so I didn't want to feel like a hypocrite or a fraud. So what I told him was, you know, the kind of question you're asking is not something you answer in a text. But I get it. I too have had years of pessimism in my life. And at your age, I was in prison, fighting for my freedom and trying to survive a life I had no clue about. But you're young, and you have lots of opportunities, more than I ever had. But if you want to have a more in-depth conversation about this, we can. So I got dressed, I ate breakfast, I went to the train station, and I was, as I was waiting for the train, he texts me back and expresses how he knows he couldn't survive what I did and says, I guess the question I have is, when you realized you weren't coming home, you must have had some awful dark thoughts. How did you get through that mentally? And I answered, day to day but I might have taken that a bit too far because I chose to sacrifice my hope in the future to concentrate 
on surviving the moment. It came to the point where I stopped dreaming about being home and all I dreamt about was prison. And now, when you ask, where do you see yourself in five years? I have no clue. I got too used to surviving the moment. But I tried to convince him that he didn't have to choose what I chose, and that there's still a little room for hope when living day to day. And as we were texting back and forth about prison life and how it was, he just mentions that he has trouble with hope in the future because when he studies physics and the universe, it depresses him to see how small we are. And I answered, yeah, I guess when you compare us to the universe outside of Earth, we are pretty insignificant but then so are our problems. I said, I think what we have to do is create something to live for and put our all into that and maybe create some kind of life for us here. Because I think that when we die, the only thing that we can take with us are our memories. And as long as we can make more good ones than bad ones, we can look back and say, I can't believe I could do that. I'm glad I did that instead of, I wish I had. And I told him, what will all that mean to the stars in the universe? Probably nothing. But to each of us, probably everything. And I told him, when you think about the universe and the vastness of it, the fact that we humans have discovered and created so much and thought about so many things, thought outside the box in so many areas. It's amazing. Who knows if there are other beings out there doing the same? And you, you're young, you can do the same. Hardships will come, life is not easy. But you too can create and think outside the box. Just remember that before you think outside the box, you have to learn what's inside of it. And he didn't text me back until the next day. And when he did, he thanked me. He said he saw things more clear now and that he especially liked the last line I texted him. And I've been thinking about things since then. And I realized that perhaps my answers were there the whole time. And that I too have to learn what's inside my heart before I start thinking outside of it.
Thank you. Brooklyn USA was produced by Sriyanka Ray, Mira Al-Rahim, Emily Bogosian, and me, Sasha Mathias. Special thanks to Leah Crockett and Vanity G for all of their amazing work putting together this evening of live music and incredible storytelling, and to the Innocence Project for helping organize the event and for everything they do. For more information on what they do and how you can be involved, visit innocenceproject.org. Thank you to Johnny, Leroy, Mark, and Carlos for sharing their stories with us, and to Larry Rosen and Bonnie Levinson of The Moth, who are sharing the two remaining stories from last week's event on their podcast. And thank you to Emily Harney and the rest of the Brick Open team for programming an incredible four-day festival. Stay tuned for our second dispatch from the Brick Open in the next two weeks. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library and the Free Music Archive and was edited and mixed by Mira Al-Rahim. If you think we got something wrong or want to get in touch, leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, and please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts. We're also on Spotify now, and the internet in general. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. Thank you so much. I just want to thank you again for coming out. Let's give it up for all these storytellers. That was so inspirational. Thank you so much. Learn more at innocenceproject.org. Come back and see us. Thank you again.